You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. It's a look back at Broadway's most magical night and all of the Have you ever dreamed of winning a Tony Award? Did you ever practice your Tony acceptance speech in the bathroom mirror? Did you grow up watching the Tony Awards every year? Do you have a collection of Tony Award shows on VHS tape that you refuse to throw out? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Every week, I interview your favorite Tony Award winners, and together we go down memory lane as my guests share intimate and never-before-shared details about their Tony experience. By the end of every episode, you're going to feel like you just won a Tony. Welcome to And the Tony Goes To. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Welcome today's Tony winner, Harvey Firestein. Thank you. Boy, am I glad this wasn't a beauty contest. To the other guys, boy, you can't compare us. I mean, you all are magnificent, what you do on those stages. But I told you, Antonio, if you're going to come to this country, you have to dress like an American in a dress. God, you haven't aged a bit. Uh, um, it really is a dream come true, but the team that, that is Hairspray, um, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman and, and Mark and Tom and Jack and Jerry and the cast, and why don't we have a Tony for ensemble? I mean, where is the Tony for ensemble? But I have never felt so embraced by artists in my life, and that includes everyone since the moment I said I wanted to do a musical. (laughs) Joan Lader, my singing teacher. (laughs) And everyone else who worked on me and with me, the designers, uh, um, unbelievable, unbelievable. The, The theater community is just a huge loving family, and I am blessed every day of my life to just be part of you people. I adore each and every one of you. I want to have your children and I promise to raise them well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome Harvey Firestein. But I didn't thank Dick. Is that the first thing you thought of just now? Um, well, actually I thought, 
I could fit in that suit. And then I thought, <laughs> I, thought I guess because, you know, because because Dick died two, a couple of years ago and I'm still I still miss him. You and Dick Latessa together in Hairspray, that is one of the most um, iconic, beloved Broadway couplings for the ages. People fell so deeply in love with the two of you. And yeah. and that was just one small part of, of all of the amazing things that made this show so special. So I want to go back a little bit. First of all, it's almost uh, 10 years since you won that Tony, you've won many, but since the hairspray night, um, 10. Uh, no. 20, 20, two 20. decades. Sorry, that's two right. Decades. Two th- yeah, 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 yeah. Time is very strange right now. Um, so let's just go back for a minute and take a little trip down memory lane with hairspray. Tell me how hairspray came into your life as an artist. It was one of those funny things. Um, when we were making the movie of Tort Song for New Line Cinema, John Waters was making Hairspray for New Line Cinema. So they had a party. I'd never met John before, though I was a fan of his of his work. And so they had a party on a rooftop somewhere, and we were all there. So I, uh, Divine I'd already met, um, and we were sort of acquaintances. Um, and John I'd just met. And it was one of those things when the movie opened, it did great. Um our movie opened, didn't do so good. Um, life went on. New, New yeah. Line Cinema went on to be whatever New Line Cinema went on to be. And, um, you know, life goes on. When, and then, you know, one of these days, I, I think, well, obviously you already read my autobiography because you interviewed me about it. Um, so, you know, I had a long period where I didn't really work and I was, uh, I got sober, I got clean and sober and all that stuff. Um, I got a call from Richie Jackson, who was my manager at that time, saying they're doing a musical of Hairspray. And so that's great. And he said, you should go up for the for the divine role. And I said, me in a musical. I love that. You know, I haven't done a musical since I was a kid. You know, I used to yeah. write all, all our shows were musicals back in the ridiculous days, you know, in the La Mama days. Everything was a musical because yeah. we were doing, you know, Common Miranda. We were doing, you know, we were doing Sound of Music with all guys. And, you know, that's what we that's what we did. So we did musicals. But um, anyway, so he said, you should go up. I said, great. And then he, he said, <coughs> I can't get you an appointment. I said, what do you mean? He said, they don't want to see you. I said, well, and, and then I started getting an attitude. I said, they don't even want to see me. They're auditioning. You know, he said, I'll take care of it. And he personally called Shaman. And Shaman said, well, of course you want to see Harvey. Don't be ridiculous. Right. So I get this appointment. I go down there. Um, there at this long table. You know what those, those things were like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was um, 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 the director at that time, who was, why am I blanking on his name? Rob Marshall. Rob Marshall, my darling Rob Marshall, the sweetest man that ever breathed on this planet. Rob Marshall sitting in the center, Mark and Scott, Margot Lyon, John Waters, the whole schmageggy of them. And I come in with my pianist because I'd been doing one man shows and I've been doing cabarets and all that. I used to do cruise ships and, you know, the stuff you do when, when there's no theater jobs, you do all that other stuff. So I had my pianist, Lenny Babish, pianist to the stars. He was, he was, do you remember Pudgy? 
the comedian Pudgy. No, she was, I want to know a, about Pudgy. Pudgy was an insult, an, uh, as a woman insult comic. She was the female Don Rickles. She died of cancer, but she used to do. Um, she was hysterical. She was absolutely fabulous, and he and he played for her, and that's how I I met him at all. Anyway, so okay. the two of us come in, and he has he's brought with him all my music, you know, because we didn't know what. But I, I I figured I would do a funny song, so I did Cole Porter's Tale of the Oyster. You know, down by the sea was a lonely oyster every day getting sadder and moister. So um, I figured just do that, and, you know, and, and, and so I did that. And, and then take it from much. there. Right. And I started leaving and they said, um, do you have an up number? I said, do I really strike you as the kind of person? Up? I said, Lenny, Lenny, what have we got? Um, so he pulls out Frankie and Johnny. Um, I used to do that, the Mae West version of Frankie and Johnny with the dirty lyrics. So we did Frankie and Johnny. I said, feel free to stop me at any time because this thing goes on and on and on. And they didn't. And they're sitting there laughing and all that. And I thanked very much. And I started leaving. Could you have, what else do you have? I said, well, I've got, I did everything in my book. Every song we had. I mean, that was an hour long nightclub act. And I did everything in the book. And I got out of that room. They were so sweet to me. And I, I went down to the lobby and a street corner phone. Remember, we used to have pay phones. Remember those things? Yeah. And I called Richie on the pay phone. And I said, darling, listen to me. You must call Shaman immediately and thank him from the bottom. They were so nice to me. They listened to me sing every, they listened to every stupid story I told them. They were so nice to me. Obviously, they can't, they just didn't know how to throw me out, I guess. They wanted <laughs> to make sure, they wanted to make sure that 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 I knew that I was seen because they yes. heard that I and I said it was so and he said, Are you done? Are you fucking done? I said, Yeah, I'm done. He said, You got the job. <laughs> oh my god! Oh and my that god! Was it. Wow! And so I went in. We did a, a, a the first workshop. They barely had the first app written, and um and I and I walked into the room, and Marissa comes running up to me. Now you know that girl, Marissa. I mean, twenty years ago, we're, we're talking about a ball of fire. I mean, there's yeah. so much energy coming at you. It's sort of like being thrown into an oven. Uh, she's just that the heat coming at you from her. And, um, you know, and it was all this excitement. You're going to be my mother. It's like, oh, I was scared to death. And then Rob comes up to me and says, this is your husband. And 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 along comes Dick sort of half bent over. And I start laughing because I had fallen in love with him doing damn Yankees. He played, you know, you got to have heart. So and I already so I already loved him. And I had right. seen him. I mean, I'd even seen him. Um, in um, oh, what, what? oh, no, 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 Follies. Mm -hmm. I saw him do Follies. He was in the original company of Follies. Right. Anyway, so he, he comes up to me and, and they start teaching us this duet. And he never, not once in all of the years, ever treated me. Well, except when he tried to seduce me, but that's another matter. Uh, that's another ne podcast. <laughs> never treated me as a man. Never. Always treated me as his wife. Always treated me with that kind of respect. Always, you know, opened doors for me. Did <laughs> I mean he was un he was unbelievable. And that attitude of his, that that acceptance of him that I was to be his wife made it all possible. 
because yeah. the show wasn't really written then. So, so it, it began to be molded around this couple. I mean, they wrote him a several songs that didn't work. They, you know, that you do all this kinds of stuff that you, and, and, and the show ends up molded around you. Right. It's what happens, which is why it's always so challenging for somebody when they take over a role, because yeah. the role is always molded on somebody else. And then they have to, even if they're the greatest individual in the world, have to find a way to yeah. make it their own. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But with Dick and I, it was just this couple that was sort of undeniable. We were just like sort of the moral center of the show. When any of the kids ever got in trouble, whenever they were having a bad day or they, especially about the business, mm -hmm. I sent them up three flights of stairs straight to Dick's room. Dick's room was, was Dick's dressing room was a monastery room. He brought nothing to the theater. I mean, nothing. It was as if he hadn't. I mean, he was there for five years. It was as if he hadn't planned on staying in the afternoon. There was, there was no, there wasn't a mug in the room. There wasn't a plastic cup you could have a glass of water. That's he'd come hilarious. With, he'd come with his coffee cup or whatever, and he put on his costume and he'd sit there. The man travels until, light until it was time for his his entrance. Then he'd come down the elevator, do his thing, go back upstairs, and just sit there. I bought him a television set. He gave it to his daughter. I bought him a stereo. He gave it to his other daughter. You couldn't do, I tried to decorate the room. When we were in Las Vegas, you know how they are in Las Vegas. There's nothing they can't do for you. I mean, they're just, they throw money at you. They throw stuff at you. They gave us such elaborate gifts. I mean, you'd walk into your dress room and you could barely get in for all the gifts. And you'd go into his dress room the next day and it was all gone because he chipped it off to his daughters. <laughs> so interesting. I mean, now you go to visit someone in, uh, in their Broadway dressing room and it looks like, you know, you're you're in they restoration in. hardware, right? Oh, like yeah. it's this complete- Oh, I love Joe Joe Mantello used to uh, have his I mean, artwork and the and the and the furniture matched the artwork and the oh my the right. things that went There's on. There's like a David Hockney on the wall. I know. Exactly. It's, 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 it's a whole thing. Dick's room was just so a folding funny. chair, a folding chair, his co coffee cup, and his costume. That was it. But the kids, I'd send them up there, and they came back with a lifetime of of uh, of advice and right. and solid advice on how to run a career and what it's really about and what's important. Uh, the the man had lived it all. I'm I'm really sorry that that I never got his story because uh, his whole story because I would have loved to have written. Yeah. Even what I know of it because it was fascinating. So anyway, so there was Dick and I. Then there was Marissa. And she had her leading man. But it never quite felt exactly right. Um, I loved him. He was adorable. Um, and, and obviously was headed for some kind of stardom. But it never felt exactly right. And then one day he walked in and announced he was leaving. He'd gotten cast in a movie. I could be wrong. 
I'm probably wrong. A movie. Uh, I, I think it was. I think it was. Um, uh, um, what's his name? A Spielberg movie or something like that. Um, I think it was with John Travolta. I don't know. Some movie never came out. I mean, the short part of the story is it never came out. He left the show. They wanted to have auditions. Marissa, being one of the most loyal human beings you will ever meet on this planet, turned to the producers, turned to the director, and said, "You have your star right here. He's." in the ensemble, Matt Morrison. And she, thanks to her, they gave Matt uh, a chance and Matt went on, as we all know, to, to his own stardom, which is a wonderful thing, but she did that. So you've got, so you have some, you have some of the background of what it was like. We then had these struggles. I mean, we did, we did a workshop of the first app. Like I said, it wasn't done. They went back. They, they fixed, they did some more. We had a little bit of a second act. Um, it wasn't working. They they came to me, Margot came to me and said, Harvey, would you join the writing team? And I said, I really don't want to. I, I, I really feel like I really want to just act and I don't want to yeah. have to take off that hat and right. sit in the other room and all, because I know what that's like. And yeah. once you're in that other room, you never get totally back. Um so they brought in they brought in Tom, um, which didn't help. Uh, bless bless him and rest his soul. It did not help. Um, but we wrote a second. They wrote a second act, um, and I remember we did a workshop of it. That was supposed to be our final workshop, like a presentation. Bette Midler was there, and and um, uh, I remember uh, Scott Rudin was there, and I mean everyone was there for the first act. <laughs> Many people left before the second. Wow. And, okay. And the word that came back to me is I remember was uh, all you have is a couple of good songs in Harvey. There's nothing else. There's no show. Um, then we were supposed to go out to Seattle. And then it got really complicated because I couldn't go like that and turned into a whole thing anyway. I I I silently joined the writing team, um, you know, ghostwriting whatever that's called. And um, Mark and Scott never, ever stopped working. I mean, the amount of songs and wonderful songs that were created. And and Jerry Mitchell, I mean, the creativity, the energy um, that he put into it. The, uh, I mean, <laughs> any cast member can, I was not in the opening number, but any cast member can tell you the three, thousand versions of the opening number alone um uh just i mean insanity and and just but a joyful insanity um our only problem was early in rehearsal um so we decided to go to seattle which was going to be exciting uh once the show we had a show that we thought would work finally. Um, and we went into rehearsal. And right. at the beginning of rehearsal, because of the nature of the show, because of the black cast and the white cast, we had a situation kind of, as Cheetah Rivera described it to me, kind of like what they were feeling on West Side Story, where one cast and the other cast was almost set against each other. That was not our intention at all. It was in West Side Story where they were fighting. That was not, but that is what happened. The black cast was out in the hall while they were doing, uh, you know, the, the sock hop dance or whatever. Um, they had nothing to do for days on end. They sat out in the hallway feeling like second-class citizens. And um, Jack O'Brien, being the master director 
and and humanitarian, and also from running a theater company. He ran, you know, the uh, San Diego. He ran the the Globe for so many years. He knew exactly what to do when he brought everybody together and said, "We are actors. We use this stuff." This is what makes it real for us. We're doing comedy and we're doing musical comedy. But that feeling you're having, those feelings, don't let them go. Use them. Use them in the show. And that really did begin to heighten the, you know, underneath all the spray of hairspray, there is this darkness. And and so that was that was wonderful. We did have to go through through that stage to get there. Um, we then went to Seattle worked our asses off um very first preview in Seattle not knowing what the hell we had um I had played with the Seattle men's chorus several times and they bought most of the balcony for that very first performance so it was all gay men up there and all fans of mine which which was wonderful to have and um and the show started and the audience was screaming from the opening number, just screaming. I mean, we were like looking at each other as we came off and trying to do costume changes, looking at each other like, what's happening? Uh, is there a show going on that we don't know about? Is there like a circus in town? We were just doing our show, which we, you know, if you've never played it in front of an audience, and we certainly hadn't, even in New York, our last dress rehearsal, you know how you do that dress rehearsal and you have friends come? Well, it's, yeah. not, in co- it's not in costume or anything, and it's a piano right. and a guitar and a drum. You couldn't tell. I mean, you could actually go online and see those little videos. You know, they used to do those little videos, you know, Bruce Glickus and, and everybody from Broadway.com and all that used to come and do little. And you can see this very little show. Little, little teeny show. And here we are on this huge stage and f- obviously filling it. But I, I, I really did go out on stage and wonder, were there elephants behind me? Or was yeah, there yeah. a camel? Was there a, an acrobatic act? to them screaming. Um, and, uh-huh. and it went on like that. And I, t- I talk about it in the book. When the show is over and we all go backstage, we're all hugging each other and saying, okay, we have work, but obviously something was going right. The assistant stage manager um, came up to me and said, Harvey, you've got to get back out there. I said, what do you mean? They said, you got to go to the stage. I said, oh, I forget something. I mean, I'm in my gotkas already. And uh, she said, you got to go back. So, uh, I mean, I had no, I'm in my underwear. I'm in a robe or something. Yeah. And I go downstairs. And as I get toward the stage, I hear the banging, you know, stomping, feet stomping. And I go out on stage. I'm choking up. I go out on stage, and the whole audience is standing there. It was a great moment. It was one of those magical moments. But of course, they were my friends. So what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> but the reality was. Yeah. You have to go back to the reality. When I had my when I had my legs and body um um waxed to play the role, I got a staph infection. So I went home every night back to the hotel. My I was so sore that I couldn't even put a, a sheet over my body, just covered in antibiotic cream. And oh my with god. A, with a fan on me all night. 
to even be able to lie down. So you say that all this fabulous excitement is right. going on. There's the real and, glamour. And the yeah. real glamour is I'm lying there in total pain, couldn't go out to dinner with anybody oh, or honey. anything. Oh, honey. For days and days. You know, I, I think a lot about sort of, you know, I've had the honor and privilege of interviewing you before and and probably have seen, you know, I don't know, countless, countless performances from Fiddler to Hairspray to, you know, all the different, all the different beautiful things you've done. It's so interesting because in knowing you and knowing your history, drag early on working with Andy Warhol and Torch Song and, and sort of originally your experience of, of woman was drag. But when I saw Hairspray, Edna Turnblad is not a drag character. Right. Edna was a woman. I mean, that was, my, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. That was my experience. There was no camp involved. There was no comment. It was seamless, clearly not effortless knowing the the weight you had, to, you know, the, the, the fat suits and the wigs and the makeup and the staph infections and all of the <laughs> waxing. Um, but can you kind of talk to me about creating whatever her. language you have. Yeah, about like, what is the difference? This Why is did what I did. not feel like drag? Yeah. I knew Divine, and I knew what Divine had done. And Divine had a real way of believing in her characters. She had an innocence that was so magnificent. Um, she, of course, she's doing these insane, outrageous characters, and yet you don't really see her lying, do you? You, she's a, there's a truthfulness to everything she does. So I knew um, I, I had to go there. I also knew the size of the show and and the camp of it and all that. Just that the straight kids were going to be doing insanity. I mean, we had songs like "Blood on the Pavement." I mean, these are songs that didn't make it to opening night, but about you know a kid driving a car and you know dying from driving the car, and we had all kinds of stuff that didn't make. And I said. I, I, and I knew that I had Dick. So what I did was I got in my car. I live in a small fictional town in Connecticut, which helps. I got in my car and I went to the mall. And I sat in the food court at the mall. And I watched the big women. And then I went to Lane Bryant. And I watched the women in Lane Bryant. And I said, this is not it. I'm not seeing it all. They, these women were still, were not embarrassed to be out. Um, I'm missing something here. Edna doesn't leave the house. Right. How do I get in there? I went to a drive-in, to drive-in uh, restaurant and parked my car where I could see the women drive up, get their food, pull over to the side and eat. And that's where Edna came from. Wow. I could watch the big women walk. Right. Um, and I also 14th Street. <laughs> Edna would not have been Edna without 14th Street in Manhattan. Um, I did a lot of my work in 14th Street and I followed these women. Um, but I wanted to know why that woman didn't leave her house. I wanted to feel the way she felt. Not that she was uh, a depressive. She had a lovely time in her house. But when her daughter drags her out for Welcome to the 60s, I wanted to know how scared she was. And then millions of people got to see that performance a few years later when they did Hairspray Live. 
Right. And what an extraordinary thing. I mean, I know the show's been done, not just in Vegas, all over the globe. um, But I think that was one of those rare instances where the, the TV version of it really captured so much of the spirit and the love. But also something that happened, uh, which I'll never really get over, <laughs> was uh, a decision that was made two days before broadcast. The whole thing had been designed to have a live audience. We were out on the street. We were not on a set like many of the other live shows. We right. were out on the back lot. Um, we had all these buildings and stuff like that. And then they built these places for the audience to be. And so we were expecting an audience and we, we'd even rehearse with some people laughing and all that. So we had that energy two days before broadcast, they decided no audience. Why? Um, I can't really tell you. I still don't really understand it. Kenny, it was not Kenny's decision by uh, it was Bob Greenblatt who I adore. Um, it may have come down. It's television. There's nobody that ever takes the blame for television. Right. You're, it was my <laughs> fault, Harvey. I, I'm was, here yeah, to exactly. say <laughs> I, I did it. I called everyone and said, let's get rid of the audience. So so the only uh-huh. live audience we had left was in the big finale scene, you know, where the audience is actually at the TV station and all that. Right. So you can even hear at one point when when um, Marty Short and I are doing uh, Timeless to Me, you can hear three blocks away the audience laughing at something going on over there, but there was nobody watching us. And there was something, I don't know, I felt it. I don't, I don't. I, right, you know, to and not I, have and that I've, energy, it's and just I've a always very felt different it. thing. Because you're out there and you're performing on the street and, you know, and you, and you, and you knew what that felt like. It felt so great when that audience, and then all of a sudden they pulled it away. Was it better television? I don't know. When I watched, did you watch the Jesus Christ Superstar? Yeah. With a live audience. I love yeah. that. Yeah. It's thrilling. I love that audience running up and down with them and all that. Yeah. I thought it was fabulous. Um, I think what which ones do they do with live audience? They some were, were the sound of music, no. And right, Greece. Greece, they did for some parts of it. Um, a lot of a lot of Greece had it. Yeah. But it wasn't the same network. Yeah. Well, this is what I will say. I had no idea. I mean, obviously. Yeah, in thinking back, right. Obviously, I would have watched it and known there was no audience there. Um, but that's just such a testament to how deeply uh, connected all of you were at that point with the characters that you played. Right. Obviously, you are, Marty. But you are making a right. But you are making a shift. You know, yeah. it's like you're yeah. you're planning on one performance, and then all of a sudden you're shifting to another performance. You yeah, know, a movie performance is very different. Yeah, no, I feel like they pulled the rug out from under you a guys little, a that little bit. Way. So yeah. I, one of these days, I'll watch it. You see, I haven't watched my Tony's speech in twenty years. You can see how much I watch of myself. I'm just fascinated with myself. I just stay in dark rooms like um, Sunset Boulevard and That's wait you. for my and wait for my close-ups. You're yeah, waiting for I, um, I don't watch I just, anything. I just want to say that. Um, you know, that cast recording also remains the original Broadway cast recording of Hairspray is really uh, one of the most perfect Broadway cast recordings. Do you ever find yourself after a show is over and granted, as we said, the show was a long time ago at this point. Do you ever find yourself walking outside with your dog, 
singing or or uh, humming tunes from Hairspray? <laughs> no. Because <laughs> I no. do. Well, because he is. Well, here's the thing. I sing other people's shows, but right as you and I are speaking, and of course, I don't know when you when this pod, well podcasts go on forever. Yes, but, evergreen. Um, I've I've said yes to doing the Holocaust Remembrance concert this year uh, at Carnegie Hall. So I've been given a song, or I chose a song. Um, the first verse is in Yiddish. Um, and the rest is in English. So these days, when I'm out with the dog or whatever, I'm singing I'm singing Yiddish as I'm trying to to get this song right. Um, yeah. And it's the strangest song in the world. It's they're doing songs written during the Holocaust. This is a lullaby to a child written in the death camp that starts out by singing about the birds flying overhead. And by the time you get to the end, it's about our house has been burned down. I'm standing here while shrieking in horror. Um, God has left us. <laughs> it's a lullaby done in a tango rhythm. Wow. Now, if those aren't a bunch of things stuck together. Wow. So, I'm, so yeah, that's what I'm singing. So that's what's days. in your head as we speak today. Yeah, I try. I tr really try very hard um, to leave the past in the past. That's what was hard about writing the memoir, because I don't do that. I mean, here, you're looking at my room. Do you see a Tony Award, a poster from a movie, a, a TV show, anything like that here? No. You see artwork. Well, actually, the two pieces behind me are, are wall. So that is my past. And 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 the, the drag queen drawing there, you can see on, on this side, that's a Wilhelmina Ross, who was, a, who was a drag actor, who was in my first two plays I ever wrote and uh, went on to become, he's long dead, but he went on to become part of uh, Warhol's uh, beautiful work. Um, so yeah, uh, you you see, I I don't live with my past. I really I live with other people's past, but not my own. It's not. It's it doesn't help. Yeah. It does. It doesn't help. I mean, there are certain things you want to do. You know, I I tried to rethink this project or that. I'd love to, um, to see a new production of Casa Valentina or something like that. I'm always always dealing with Lacage, um, but tomorrow is so much more fun. It's why I don't even really love acting in my own stuff, because once I've written it, I've written it. The big right. questions. I mean, so what dress am I going to wear or what hair style? Yeah, it's not such a big question. Yeah, the, the finding the character is the big question. So I'd much rather act in other people's stuff. But of course, most writers think you don't want to because you do your own writing. I mean, right. this is something that Charles Bush and I have talked about and, and many other, uh, Sam Shepard and I talked about that. Um, yeah. A lot of people just think because you write, you want to write act, but it's not so much fun acting in your own stuff. Right. What joy to just have to worry about your part in the thing, I would and imagine. To create, and to create a new character that you didn't even know existed in your yeah. head. Yeah, that's the I mean, that's what we do, isn't it? And yeah. that's the and that's the wonderful escape from ourselves. Mm -hmm. But but you do that also when you write it. Yeah, you escape. But once right. you write it, you've written. Yeah, yeah, yeah I yeah. do. Warn, I do warn people, though, if you're going to write a memoir, <laughs> there's one thing you better know. 
when you put it down, the faucet never turns off. And it just keeps coming. And the memories just keep coming. And it opens a faucet of the past that is quite strange. Um, yeah. In fact, when I wrote Funny Girl, um, right in that first scene, when I wrote Funny Girl, I described I described the opening scene um, as I described. I've got the script on the computer right here. I think um, I described the stage as such. Um, mirrors refract sparks and beams of light back and forth, revealing pieces of brick walls, painted flats, peeling deco wallpaper and faded furnishings. Figures appear and disappear in shadows. Nothing is permanent. This is a world that can't be trusted. It's theater. It's memory. The ghost light bleeds through the stage curtain, revealing Fanny. So it's I wrote that the world of theater is not to be trusted. And that's the feeling I wanted of her sitting down at that table and then remembering her life. And then, you know, um, Michael added that lovely ballet at the end where the whole life then appears again to her. But she has a line to, to her dresser. She says, um, do you ever feel like your, your past is watching you? And that's and that's what happens when you write your memoir. It doesn't. So I said to my editor, he said, you know, do you want to write a, a second version, second thing? And I said, well, maybe someday. I said, I make notes about what I remember. So I said, but I do have the title for it. Bottomless. <laughs> I would love it if you could just finish this sentence for me. To me, Harvey Firestein, hairspray is. A lovely memory. It's a, it's a lovely thing. But, you know, I love those people. I love seeing them. But it's uh, uh, when La Caja Fall opened, and this story's in the book, we're standing in the back of the theater on opening night, and the audience is going insane, and Arthur Lawrence is crying his eyes out. It'd been a while since he had hit. And Jerry Herman's absolutely out of his mind. It's been years since he had a hit. And Marvin Krauss, do you remember Marvin Krauss before your time? Marvin Krauss was the general manager of the show. And he put his arm around me and said, go away. I said, we, he said, there are people that will stay here and they'll stay. The show's going to run for years. They'll stay here and they will be part of it and they will live in the show. And when it's over, they will want uh, revivals and they want this and and they will never leave the show and they probably will never go on with anything else important in their lives. They'll do other things, but go away. Go. You have more to do. Go. And I and it was the best advice. And that's what I do is when a show closes, I cry my eyes out. Sometimes I even scream and yell and and blame producers and directors and audiences and everything else. I mean, what I saw last night, they put up the closing notice for for um, Almost Famous. It doesn't even matter what show. I see that. The first thing that hits me is the heartache, knowing what that cast is going through. Whatever you fucking think of the show. Right. You, you know there are broken hearts everywhere. Sure, yeah. The, and the, but the best thing to do is, is go on. And even Arthur Lawrence said it to me. He said on opening night of Safe Sex, which was a huge hit 
at La Mama. When right. it opened up, Broadway was just all wrong. Everything about it was wrong. It just didn't work. And he said, go home and start writing the new one. And you did. And you and will continue and that's to where do you have, so. And that's yeah. what life is. Yeah. Don't, don't sit looking back. Don't. Glory days, you know. So Harvey well, Fires and Hairspray is a lovely memory. Let's move on. Um, 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 Nina West just finished playing it on the road. You know, my darling friend Nina, uh, um, who was on RuPaul's Drag Race, that was absolutely fabulous in the show. Now somebody else is doing it. Sure. Hairspray will go on and on and on. And obviously, so do I. <laughs> Harvey Firestein, thank you for being on. And the award goes to I love you. Thank you for doing this. Bye, my darling. And the Tony Goes To is produced by Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. The music and lyrics for the theme song were written by Georgia Famusa. Theme song orchestration by Alexander Sage Oyen. Episodes are edited by Derek Gunther. Thank you to Parody Bill for the graphics. And please don't forget to go to the iTunes show page and rate and review the show. Thanks for listening. Excerpt from the Tony Awards used with permission of Tony Awards Productions. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.